All right. Thank you. Again, if you're visiting, my name is Peter. Welcome to the Springs. Our church is a part of a larger family named Every Nation, and we will spring forth unto every nation with more Jesus. Amen? Amen. By growing. By growing and being followers of Christ, family-focused, and fishers for men. So let's grow together right now. Amen? We're in Genesis. Genesis, if you didn't know, is where your story begins. Some of you are like, man, I'm just figuring that out. That's helpful. You're welcome. So again, your story in a nutshell is this. God made us. We broke us. And God loves us so much anyway that he, he comes and stirs redemption. The word redemption means to take back. So he comes into the middle of your mess and starts redeeming, taking things back, stirring a new dream for humanity. And that's what we're seeing here in Genesis 37. God is revealing a specific dream within his great dream for humanity, a specific dream to Joseph. Now, Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of faith. Amen? And Joseph is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Now, being the favorite son didn't necessarily win him a popularity contest with his 10 older brothers, as we'll see. They didn't like him very much. We'll pick up in verse 5 of Genesis 37, and don't worry, we, uh, we're the second service today, so we have hours, okay? We're going to go through all the way through chapter 45 in the next several hours, okay? Um, some of y'all visiting, I'm just going to let that hang, okay? Next 30 or 40 minutes, all right? Start with verse 5 of Genesis 37. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear the dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. That's, that's groupings of wheat. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, as ambiguous as that vision and allegory was, his brothers understood it very clearly. They said, what, we're going to bow down to you? And so he goes with further painful nuance and tells another similar dream. And it says here in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. A strange dream that Joseph dreamed. If you're taking notes, the title of my message is Death to a Dream. Death to a Dream. To a dream. Remember, Jesus says in John 12, he says, Unless a grain of wheat, or in this case, a sheaf of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, that grain will remain alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Now, this whole dying to rise again makes implicit sense when we're considering the application as it relates to our sin, right? We have to die to sin to live with Christ. Man, God's shown me that over and over and over again the last 19 years or so. Dying to sin, being alive with Christ. But when this relates to a God-given dream, dying in your life, 
It's a little bit harder to grasp. It's counterintuitive. In fact, it's one of those beautiful counterintuitive truths that the Bible throws out at you. You see, the Bible is not something that's easily to, easy to package around your dreams and your ambitions. You see, our, our dreams find their unexpected root and flourishing in, in strange ways in the Bible. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it'll bear no fruit. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. And this very dream that Joseph dreamed, we'll see it fell to the ground and died. And God, as we'll see in the coming chapters, started to bring it to life in unexpected ways and unexpected places. Now, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit gives each and every one of us ability, illumination, to see what God's saying in his word and how it relates to our dreams, our plans, our career ambitions, and what he's doing, even when you think nothing's happening and he's doing nothing. Here's one big idea that I want you to consider in Joseph's life and I dare you to consider in your own life. And that's this, that when it seems that God has buried your dream, Perhaps he's just planted it in the ground. Now that's what we're going to see beautifully revealed in Joseph. The Bible is such an unexpected glory. I've heard people say before, the Bible, the Bible is a religious book, or the Bible is just a, uh, you know, it's a how-to manual for a few truths that are helpful for your life. But listen, the Bible is so much more than that. In fact, the Bible is probably right, more rightly a, a vast library of all truth, containing all sorts of genre, from, from the law to historical narrative to poetry to a, a, apocalyptic writing to allegory. And it's all unified in one big story about Jesus creating a people, those people re- rebelling against him, and him redeeming a people for his own eternal praise. It's a big story. A glorious story. And what we're about to read, and what the Bible's going to preach on my behalf mostly, is one of the greatest stories within the big story of the Bible. Joseph has just dreamed a dream. He's revealed it to his brothers and his own teen angst. He had to share it with everybody, and they hated him all the more. And his dream went to die, as immediately following his brothers got jealous, they decided to kill him. They relented. And as he begged for his life, they sold him into slavery. And he was, his dream was dead and buried as he was sold into slavery and delivered to Egypt. Now we'll see, pick, the story picks back up in chapter 39 here. If, you're, if you have your Bible, follow along. Uh, we'll have some of these scriptures on the screen. But in Genesis 39, it's interesting because it says that even though he was sold into slavery, it says the Lord was with him. No matter what you do or where you are, That's probably the most important thing. Are you with the Lord? Is the Lord with you? It says the Lord was with Joseph and he arose to power as a servant, serving well in the house of Potiphar, which was one of the highest officials of Egypt. He arose to power and he was, he had so much favor on his life that unfortunately Potiphar's very wife saw that favor. Now it said that he was handsome in form and appearance and probably had a deep, sexy voice too, but he had favor of God on his life. And she was quite interested with that. And as much as she would come on to him and come on to him, come on to him, he was righteous and denied her. 
up until one point where he ran from her presence and she, she grabbed his clothes and tore them off. He's running from her presence. She screams, ashamed that she couldn't get what she wanted when she wanted it. She screams and makes up a story that he had come in to try to rape her. And here he is guilty. He said, she said thing. Potiphar's wife claiming that he, he tried to rape her and he's naked and afraid. He's got no, he's got no story to, to tell on his own. That was back before the really trusty, reliable Jerry Springer lie detector tests, of course. And he is, he is alone and he is imprisoned under false pretense, put into jail. And I'm thinking Joseph's life. He's, as a teenage boy, he has this great dream of grandeur, and all of a sudden he's sold into slavery. There's a glimmer of hope and back into prison. But it says at the end of verse chapter 39, it says that the Lord was with him. Even in the prison, he found favor in the Lord's sight. And it says that he was put in charge of everything that was in the prison. Chapters 40 and 41, it tells of how the baker who was also imprisoned with him had a dream, a very specific dream, that Joseph was able to interpret that in three days, based on this dream, he would be released from prison and restored to serve under the Pharaoh. And that dream came true. And Joseph said, remember me. The baker said, okay, yeah, okay. But he forgot. So here we are, Joseph, in prison again. And the baker, when, when, uh, when Pharaoh, the next chapter, chapter 41, Pharaoh has his own dream. No one could interpret it. A strange dream of seven fat cows. And all of a sudden, out of the water come seven gaunt, skinny cows, and they eat up the fat cows. What is that? No one knew. All the people in Egypt could not interpret this dream, but the baker said, wait a minute. Oops. I remember this guy in prison that's good at interpreting dreams. You should call him forth. So Joseph's called out of prison to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and it was pleasing to Pharaoh. Now let me stop here and say, isn't it uncanny how God brings Joseph into his narrative by showing a dream that Joseph had? And when Joseph's dream is dead, indeed buried in a foreign land, God uses dreams to redeem Joseph's dead dream. Just like God. Joseph goes before Pharaoh and, and interprets the dream. He says, the seven fat cows are seven years of plenty. That, that we will have unprecedented favor with, with agricultural might. We'll have all sorts of grain. And then the seven years, the, the seven uh, gauntly cows that will eat up the, the seven fat cows are seven years of famine and drought. Those seven years will eat up the years of plenty. And then Joseph goes beyond that and gets a word of wisdom and tells him what he should do. He says, you need to store up one-fifth of all the, the, the grain in these first seven years so that in the seven years of plenty, we'll have more than enough for us and to sell. It was pleasing to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh said at the end of chapter 41 and said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one discerning and wise like you, verse 40 of chapter 41, you shall be over my house and all the people shall order themselves as you command. So in a moment, from the prison to the palace, as we heard last week, he goes from the prison to second in command of all the world, essentially. 
And as we enter into these seven years of drought, as Joseph predicted, the world, in in essence, the, the ancient Middle East, is without water, without grain. And in the second year of famine, in fact, just to the northwest of them in the land of Canaan, Joseph's family is facing starvation. And that's where we pick up in chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was no grain for sale, this is J- Jacob, Joseph's father, know that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, quit fooling around and get out of here and get us some grain. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. That's one good survival principle, to live and not die. That's one of the goals. Verse 3. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. You see, as far as Jacob knew, his beloved wife, Rachel, had given him her first son, Joseph, and then given birth to Benjamin. And Rachel died in giving birth to Benjamin. And then as far as Jacob knew, Joseph was dead as the, one of the lies of the brothers that they told after they sold him into slavery. So he said, look, Joseph's dead. Rachel's dead. Ain't no way I'm sending, Jake, sending Benjamin. He sends the oldest 10. Now watch as Joseph's dead dream planted in the ground begins to bud at the surface as God is watering Joseph's dead dream unbeknownst to him. Verse six, it says, now Joseph was governor over the land and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces on the ground. So here you have Joseph's dream that he can imagine from decades before that was dead and gone. He, he sees it again. He sees what God predicted and showed him when he was a teenager, when he probably didn't have the, the character or fortitude to see it manifest in his presence. Here, after 14 years in prison, after decades of, of God's uh, development in the midst of his pain, he sees his dream come to life right before him. And instead of just having the dream play out how he thought it would be to his benefit, this was a dream bearing fruit to, uh, to really global proportions. How much is that like God's dream for your life? He gives you a dream for your life. It's specific. And look, one thing we know for certain, it doesn't play out the way we think it's going to play out. And your dream is for, for a lot more than just you. It's for something way bigger than you. And that's what Joseph is, is seeing here. It says that as they bowed before him, It says twice here in this chapter that he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. Now, I don't think you would recognize you either if you were taken in the Pharaoh's house, shaven completely and put in Egyptian garb. I don't think you would recognize you either. They didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And in fact, it says that he overheard their, what they thought were private conversations. Sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, be speaking with my kids or my wife, and we'll be speaking in Spanish around people who don't understand Spanish, and we think we're being in a private conversation, or that happens to me all the time, because if you didn't know, I'm extremely wedito, and a lot, of, a lot of times people speaking Spanish don't know that I understand. 
This is what was happening. He was listening to them, understanding what they were saying. And they thought they didn't know it was Joseph. And so in the midst of this power, Joseph did what any young man would do when he has the power back. And he is now over his brothers who had sold him into slavery and hard decades of bitter labor. He begins to treat them harshly. He says, look, y'all are here to spy on the land. You've come to see the nakedness of the land, he says. Essentially that we are vulnerable and you've come to spy on us. And the brothers responded, no, 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 no. we're not spies. Look, we're, tr- we're 12 brothers. We just came here to buy grain. And he said, wait a minute, 12? I only see 10. You're lying spies. And they said, no, 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 look, one of our brothers died and the other is at home with their father. He said, I don't believe you. And he put them all in prison. Now, three days later, verse 18 of chapter 42, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest of you go carry grain for the famine to your households and bring your youngest brother to me. The youngest brother would be the proof that they're telling the truth. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, thinking that he didn't understand them. He said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're speaking of Joseph. Their their guilt is being manifest here. We're guilty concerning Joseph in that we saw his distress in his soul when he begged us to not sell him into slavery and we didn't listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you to not sin against that boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know, verse 23, that Joseph understood them for they had been speaking with an interpreter. Verse 24, then Joseph turned away and began to weep. He returned to them and he took Simeon from them, bound him in front of their eyes. Simeon is one of the oldest brothers. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And this was done for them. Now they didn't know that their money was replaced till probably a few days later. It says that they were, they were at a, a resting place and they found out, okay, we have all the grain for our families and we have the money too. They began to get freaked out even more. Guilt continued to haunt them. See, God is judging us right now. We can't go back to him now because he's going to kill us. He thinks that we've stolen from him now. And they were fearful. They go back to Jacob, their father, and they said, okay, so here's what happened. We go there. He thought we were spies. We kind of told him that we have another brother. And Jacob says, why did you do that? Why didn't you lie? See, Jacob is a father of the faith, but just as flawed as you and me. He says, why didn't you, why did you withhold? Why didn't you withhold the truth that you had another younger brother? They said, yeah, so now we got to bring Benjamin back to prove that we're not lying to him. And, and it'll be all good. And Jacob says, uh-uh. 
Imagine what it would have been like to be Simeon bound in Egypt years later to find out your dad was willing to just go ahead and let you go. He's like, ah, to heck with Simeon. Ain't no way I'm sending Benjamin back. So he refuses. But we pick up in chapter 43 here. The food eventually ran out, as food tends to do. I know with four small kids, that's true. And when the food ran out, Jacob changed his mind. Now that's, how many of you know that God will often use a physical need like hunger to enact a spiritual work in your life? Amen? It's just what happened with Jacob here. So Jacob relents and says, okay, you can go bring Benjamin in. But look, I'm going to die if something happens to him. Seriously. And Judah promises him, if anything happens to him, you can kill me and my two sons. Going way over the top there. And he says, don't let anything happen to to Benjamin. So they bring Benjamin back. Joseph, the end of chapter 43, sees them and asks about the well-being of their father. When they present themselves to Joseph again, it says, they said, they replied in verse 28 of chapter 43, they said, your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves again. See, seeing his vision come about again. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? See, he hadn't probably seen Benjamin since he was a small boy or even a baby. He said, Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food! And he began to serve a huge feast. And and Benjamin sat at a special place near him, and he gave Benjamin five times the amount of food at that feast. And we're coming into Thanksgiving here. And we can get a vision for this. Now, verse chapter 44 here, verse 1. He sends them back. And Joseph pulls an even greater ruse on his brothers. Messing with them. Says he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money back in the mouth of his sack. But then listen, put my cup. Now it was a special silver cup uh, used for various different things in Egypt. He said, put my cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did so and told them to do that. So he sends them out. And as they go out, he tells the men, the officials of Egypt, to go pursue them. And the officials hunt down Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, and say, you've stolen from our master. You've stolen money and you've stolen a cup. He accuses them. And their reply, verse 9, says, no, no way. There's no, we, we did not steal anything. Look, test us. Come and look at it. They said, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. That's how confident they were. And we also will be your Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, but he he lessens the deal. They went over the top and he said, let it be as you say, but look, he who is found with the cup may be the servant and the rest of you will be innocent. Nobody's got to die here. 
Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And they searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Dun, dun, dun. Then it says, they tore their clothes, and every man loaded their donkey and went returned to the city. They're in trouble. They're terrified. They're caught. They're thinking, God is judging us here. Joseph, when they get back, says, what, what were you guys trying to get past me here? Do you think you could get away with this? And they're begging for their lives. Judah goes up to him and gives himself as ransom. He said, you can take me instead. Please don't take Benjamin. I have no idea what happened here. Please take me. Joseph says, no, don't worry about it. Y'all are innocent. It's just the person who is, who is found with the silver cup is liable and he'll be the servant here forever. Don't worry about it. The rest of you are free to go. And Judah says, you don't understand. If this little guy has to stay here, our father is dead. Please. Joseph could just not take it any longer. Chapter 45, one of the most amazing resolutions in any story ever told in the history of humanity. Verse one, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried in in Egyptian, make everyone go out of here. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. Here they are thinking everyone's going out so he'll kill them all. And Joseph's brothers instead, this terrifying man is weeping before them. He wept so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh long way heard it as well. That's some loud weeping. Verse 8, Joseph said to his brothers, presumably in their, their own language in Hebraic, he said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Long, terrifying silence followed. But his brothers could not answer them, him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So thinking themselves dead in the hand of Pharaoh's second in charge, They thought themselves dead and they were terrified. And and in a moment, they went from terrified to way more terrified. Because here's the brother. He actually has just pretense to kill us. But it says that Joseph shows them forgiveness and mercy and favor. And we see the redemption unfold in the chapters to follow. But here we have God bringing redemption to this whole family. And indeed, this, this moment is a seed of redemption for the whole earth. God uses the death of Joseph's dream to redeem a greater dream that God had all along. Beloved, what about you? What about your life? What about your dreams? Could it be that the death of your dream isn't necessarily the end of your dream? What if, what if the death of your dream, the disappointments, the pain, what if that's just unexpected soil for a greater flourishing than you could have ever thought out, planned, scheduled? Let me tell you a little bit of my dream growing up. I dreamed of being a major league baseball player. My dad played pro ball. My brother played pro ball. That's all I wanted to do. 
And I wanted to play pro baseball because I worshiped baseball, but really I worshiped myself. I wanted to be famous and I wanted everyone to know about it and better than everyone else. And by the way, richer. I worshiped myself. You could see it in the way that I, I perversely treated other young women. I was just a normal young sinner. Yeah, I went to church every once in a while. I lit a few candles. I was religious. I said sorry when I really felt bad, but I didn't know Jesus. Baseball was my thing. It was my dream. And on one day in high school, I got invited to a Bible study and came to see the red letters in this amazing story. My friends preaching to me, telling me of this life, this dream that God had for humanity. And honestly, guys, as much as I'd I'd seen the thrill of sin and all sorts of things before, the thrill of this dream that I was just not living out, Jesus called me to himself, redeemed me, made me his own. Now from high school on, here I am, I'm a Christian now. God starts to teach me ways to, to see how he sees women. It, all sorts of things starts to reconstitute me, but I still had this dream, right? Before it was baseball for me, now it's baseball for Jesus, baby. And I got a scholarship to play college baseball, and something happened in college. I don't know, my college baseball uh, coaches, they were just really picky, They wanted pitchers to throw strikes and stuff, and I wasn't really doing that a whole lot. And I had some trouble in college baseball. I wasn't making it to the pros, seemingly anytime soon. I transferred to Texas State. I tried out for the baseball team here. I had a very simple conversation with the coach right after my tryout. He said, okay, Peter, right? And Coach Harrington respectfully looks me in the face and says, hey, so right now, I have seven left-handed pitchers better than you. You're not going to be on this team. Now, you can transfer to a junior college and come back, and I know there will be a spot for you. In that moment, I realized in further study that by the time I could transfer and come back, my eligibility to be up, I could have graduated by the time. And uh, I made the decision. It was hard. Everyone, especially with baseball. and football, you know, like, okay, I, I don't run a 4-5-40, and I'm not 270 pounds. I, I ain't going to make it, right? In baseball, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Everyone thinks they can make it. And at that moment, I had to decide, what can I do or what should I do today? And that moment was the death of my dream. But listen, a greater dream started to flourish in the the pain of that. I met a man named Barrick, who was the quarterback at this this university at the time. You know what? Barrick was my first black friend. I grew up in Oregon. It's the heart of Caucasia. So I had not seen the gospel in this unique type of environment before. He had just came to know the Lord a few years before. And uh, Barak and I started this Bible study, which is now this church. A greater dream has come to the surface. Barak's wife leads worship here now. In fact, we were roommates in college, and the next year we both got better roommates. We both got married that year. God is stirring a greater dream. And even to this year, this whole process of death and life and resurfacing of dreams, the process seems to be never-ending. Because even into this year, I was, I was running into a few walls of, of things that we were trying to do in this church, and just... I didn't know what to do. And I was thinking, God, give me some wisdom, you know, just a few how-tos for what I'm supposed to do. And when I'm looking for just a few how-tos, God's looking for death and life. 
one of my friends got a word for me and sharing that with me said, I don't know, you just write this down. I don't know what it's saying, but God's saying the safest place for your ambition is at the cross. And I journaled it. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's helpful. Thank you very much, you know. But seeing God apply that through various things that have happened in the last few months where God has literally killed me and planted me in a deeper, more beautiful way than ever. And there's new life like nothing before. I could have never expected some of the things that have been happening radically these last few months. Only God could do it. I want to ask you, what's God doing in your life? What are things that you've dreamed? What's happening with those dreams right now? Could it be that when it seems like he's buried your dream, he's just planted it in the ground? And is it in good soil? Think about the greatest dream ever dreamed by any man, any person, anywhere, anytime. It was dreamed by 12 individuals who had no business walking together. Aside from the fact that the very Son of God drew them together to be on mission. It was more scandalous that they were together than look around in this room. The fact that there's the beautiful diversity we see in here. They had a common dream. They saw miracles. They saw the kingdom of God. Here we go. The prophecies long ago foretold are coming to life right now. And then on one abrupt Friday, everything died when Jesus died on the cross. And that had to be a long Saturday. But Sunday came. And Jesus, the most important historical event ever, verifiable, powerful, Jesus got up from the dead. And he is alive today. He's seated at the right hand of God. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. He's alive and he is killing dreams and resurrecting them. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never died and become alive in him, and if you are alive, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to explain it. Then today, as we're giving ourselves in ministry time, we're, we're all responding. And when we're singing the church songs, I give myself away. I'm going to tell you right now, by the Spirit of God, it is, your, it is your turn to give yourself away to God. And you know who you are. It's, your, it's my invitation to you. But the rest of us, I believe God's resurrecting dreams and ambitions in all of us. And as we go into this last song, I want you to, everyone to stand to your feet, please. I want the growth group leaders to come up front. We're going to have an opportunity. I believe wherever you are, You need to do business with God. Don't just sing the words of this song. Pray them. Honestly, vulnerably, rawly. Watch God resurrect dreams for his glory, his praise. And watch him unite us together for something historical. But do your part. Just respond to God. If you need to come up front and pray with someone who who also has need of God to resurrect their dreams. We're all together here. But during this last song, the second verse starts like this. It says, all my dreams, all my plans, Lord, I place them in your hands. 
we're going to allow this last song to minister to, to you before I come back up and close. But please don't let this just be a moment before dismissal. This could be a moment you tell your kids about. Do business with God and I'll come back up and close.